I am Emily Lyons. In 2011, without a high school degree and with no money to my name, I decided to start my own business. Since then, I've built several multi-million dollar companies and I don't plan on stopping. Being a businesswoman, CEO, serial entrepreneur, survivor, and general life enthusiast, I'm endlessly jazzed by the business of life, especially the stories of extraordinary people I've had the privilege to meet along my own improbable journey to success. I don't think it's fair to keep that privilege to myself, and I think you deserve to be utterly lifted and shifted by these people too. All inspiring people are inspired people, so get ready to be inspired. All right. Today, I'm joined by my dear friend, Chris McLeod. Chris, welcome. Hey, Emily. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on with you. Oh my gosh, Chris, you are absolutely incredible. You are one of my favorite people. Your story, everything you do and you bring to the world. I mean, if people aren't familiar with you, tell them who you are. Who's Chris? Okay. First, God bless you and thanks, Emily. You and all the work you do at Femme Fatale and your other enterprises is absolutely inspirational and incredible. We love it. As you know, Cambridge LLP, my firm, has used your services and uh, the phenomenal and successful. I love it. bit about my background. So when I was born in 1969, Life expectancy for someone with cystic fibrosis, which I was born with, it's a genetic condition, was four years old. Slowly with the advent of science and new medications to treat it, it went from four to six to eight to 12. So I've sort of successfully ridden the curve in life, really just took the view that it is what it is. You just got to focus on the future and possibilities, let your imagination drive you on that. So pursued education, got a law degree, have my own firm with my two dear friends and law partners, and now 51 and have had some hiccups on the health front, but luckily they were hiccups that we overcame. And I practiced law and during the pandemic wrote a book, The Odds, 11 Lessons to Overcome a Health Crisis, Lead a Resilient Life. I love it. And I love the book. And it's not just... For a health crisis, I think anybody in any situation should really use it because we can all use resilience. We can all relate with suffering. Oh, no. Like, hey, listen, suffering is part of the human condition. That is the human condition. <laughs> Everyone has their own mountain to climb and their own stories that they're creating and dealing with. And we all need to cultivate resilience to get through our lives and make something incredible of the life we've been given. So you're right. It's you know, I said it in hindsight, I probably would change it to not say health crisis, but we all became so preoccupied with the COVID pandemic and sort of a health crisis writ large on all of us. Yeah. And because of my own personal story, trying to deal with and manage the challenges of a health condition imposed on me through, you know, genetics. And, uh, you know, I've cultivated some tools and tactics to deal with it and I hope come out ahead. So I wanted to share those, what I call lessons that I've learned. It's incredible because I mean, you've achieved this level of success. You run this firm in one of the biggest cities in Canada, biggest city, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. the majority of people couldn't achieve what you have, but yet you've been able to do it while living with a terminal disease. Yeah. How? How? <laughs> Well, you know, the first thing you do is never get preoccupied with the challenge, the illness. Turn it into a footnote. 
a nuisance. And so try and do so much with yourself and your life that it's literally an afterthought. If I had a, and I'm overstating it, but just to make the point, a mole, I try and make it like a mole on your skin or, you know, relegate it to the sidelines. And that's the best way to deal with it. So yeah, you know, I've, I mean, back to my 20, I've had a few times where I've had a serious, uh, I guess, episode with the condition. I mean, CF for your viewers' background, genetic condition that affects the lungs and digestive system. So your pancreas doesn't produce enzymes, so you can't digest your food. So you have to take enzymes to assist in digesting your food. And of course, without nutrients, it's hard to fight infection. And there's a lot of buildup of infects the salt channels. So you get mucus buildup in your lungs. Therefore, you get infections. So it's a combination of lack of nutrients to thrive and infection that keeps hitting you, mostly in the lungs. And, of course, when you get down with bronchitis and pneumonia and susceptible to particular varieties of infection. And that's what really gets people, ultimately, why there is a high mortality rate is you know, your lungs eventually wear out. And so either you need a lung transplant or you'd expire. Up till now, including last year, we lose about 50 to 60 people with 2CF. Either they get a lung transplant or they pass. And the median age of death is 31, I think it is. So, uh, you know, it's challenging, but you just can't think about it. So put it this way, you shouldn't dwell on it. It's like anything in life. Don't dwell on the negative. Accentuate the positive. Well, whatever your opportunity. Yeah. I mean, last year after my mom passed away, people knowing that I'd lost my sister to CF, people kept saying to me, how are you so positive? How do you keep going? And it's like, well, I can either sit around and dwell on all the negative or I can live my life to the best of my ability and, and try to be happy and try to focus and amplify those positive parts. Well, exactly. And I mean, of course, knew your mother and she's an incredible woman. You've got a lot of her spirit and energy, and <laughs> Thank you. it's exactly what she would want it to. Right? Oh, 100%. You know, you're living the life that she would want you to live, and there's nothing more rewarding, I'm sure, for a parent than to see and to know their child is thriving. So you're right. I mean, despite what goes on or in spite of it, you just got to keep driving forward. I remember... I've. Big onto you know personal development books, and I'm always trying to look for and find motivation. Mm -hmm. That's what you, in life you need momentum. When you have momentum, you're almost unstoppable, and you just don't know when momentum comes. So you always have to be up and ready to seize it when it arrives. One of the tools I always use, and a lot of people talk about this, about being grateful. Listen, if you are alive, you've got eyes to see. You've got legs, you can still walk. I mean, no matter what your situation or condition, if you're living, you can find something to be grateful for. When I was on four liters of oxygen a minute, five months of six, I was at St. Mike's Hospital, Ward 6B, which is, and God bless St. Mike's Hospital, but it's an old building. It sure is. <laughs> As you know, it's not exactly the Ritz. But when you're there, I wake up and I thought to myself, Wow, McLeod, you're in the game. I've got a window. I can look out. You can see the sun shining in. Another day is another chance. So, and this was pre-COVID, obviously. So I could get up, take off the oxygen and the intravenous tube, walk more like shuffle down the hall, go outside, get a cup of coffee, 
took everything I had to make that walk. Uh-huh. And I thought, and then I sat down in the coffee shop. You know, it's 9 a.m., you're beat. But I'm thinking, I'm still in the game. I don't know when the break was going to come or if it would. But that's what the living is for, you know, fighting and finding the break. So it was, I went in in June, out for a couple of weeks, but back in. And I'll never forget the moment the break came in. This is a, uh, my mom, woman of faith, calls me on Sunday, September 21st, 2012. And I remember I've been there for weeks and nothing's working. We're doing antibiotics around the clock. It's not moving the dial. I went from 27 to maybe 29%. So we're getting a possibility of a lung transplant. My mom calls and she said, Chris, I got great news. I said, what? She said, I just know something amazing is going to happen this week. She said, I've been praying day and night. Everyone we know is praying for you. And Chris, I can just feel it. I really believe something great's going to happen this week. I said, well, my God, I hope you're right. We had no clue what could possibly be the break because every antibiotic no one is we're using. And oh. we've been using them for weeks. I'm eating, by the way, I can't get my weight on the digestion piece of it. From 147 to 150, I'm eating 6,000 calories a day. Oh, my gosh. We couldn't move the dial. I'm getting up. I'm walking laps with the oxygen tank every night at St. Mike's. Nothing. So anyhow, next morning... And you know Dr. Tullis, yep. incredible human, great doctor, walks into my room 9 a.m. Monday morning. She said, Chris, I've got good news and bad. I got a moratorium on bad news. What's the good news? Good news only. She said, well, you actually have a rare form of CF. It's the Delta 551 gene. And there's a company in Boston. First of all, I had no idea I had a 551 gene. I didn't know there were different gene mutations. Okay. Oh, that's funny. She said, there's a company in Boston that has a drug that we believe goes a long way to normalizing the defect in your gene type with CF. That's incredible. She said, well, problem is it's not approved for use in Canada. And the FDA only approved it last week. She said, so it'll be a while. But your situation's so concerning, you'll expire by Christmas with the flu, et cetera, and your lung function. So the company's agreed to give it to you on compassionate grounds. Oh, my gosh. But we need to get it into the country. So we've applied. It takes 24 hours. We should know tomorrow. Of course, we never got a reply from the government. Not a no, not a yes, just nothing. Oh, my gosh. After a week, I'm sitting there going back and forth to her office. Poor Dr. Tulls. Her office is right at the end of the hall. So I knew like 11 at night, I'd be out there waiting for her. And I'm like, what's going on? I thought to myself, well, she's McLeod. You've got to get on this. I'm a lawyer by trade. I should be advocating for myself. So... We got on and within 10 days, it turns out the government was, had decided to decline it because they were concerned that if the company withdrew the compassionate use, they would be on the hook. It's just not a case of law. It's not accurate. So it was a bureaucratic mistake. We finally had an army of friends and allies, former members of parliament, cabinet ministers, senators, you name it. Great Canadians across the board who came to my aid all called the Prime Minister's office, Minister of Health. Ultimately, the minister intervened and said, we'll make an exception and allow it through. So myself and four others got on the drug. Within 10 days, my lung function was up to 60%. Oh, my gosh. Out of the hospital. So it was like truly, but the point being, wow. don't know where the break in the game comes. Yeah, I, and if you give up, you miss that break. Miss it. And listen, 
I got the break. The company said yes, but the government said no. So you've always got to be moving, working. And I, you know, for 10 days, luckily, you've got with internet access and a cell phone in the hospital room, I could effectively call and write to anyone and everyone. So uh, we had a little lobby campaign effort, and it worked. But that's because people came to help me. Uh, we worked together, and we got it done. But that's where momentum comes. That momentum and the little momentum. So a member of parliament saying, I'll do anything to help you. Chris, you've got to do this. Call this person. Everyday small little breaks of momentum. Yeah, and you jumping on them, though. It fills your sails, and it becomes an unstoppable rally cry to get the ball in the end zone. Did you ever want to give up? Like, was there ever a point where you were like, I can't do this? No, honestly, I can say you could call it a character flaw. (laughs) Believe me, there's many times I have not succeeded in lots of things in life, but it's never because I decided to give up. And probably on many of them, I should have. Yeah, I never thought of giving. Well, first of all, your life is on the line. So there really isn't Let the clock count you out, not your will, right? So, you know, we're all, one thing is inevitable. We're all going to die at some point. It's inevitable. Hopefully it's when we're 90 or 100. But you've been given the responsibility, gift in life, of life. So you just run with it. And, you know, at some point it will end. But when it ends, let it not be of your making. (laughs) You know, you remind me so much of, this TED Talk, she actually has a book as well, Angela Duckworth, it's called Grit. And they conducted this, I don't know if you've read it or heard it. She conducted it and haven't read it yet. Oh, you haven't yet. It's fantastic. They conducted this study on the most successful people in the world and in all different areas. So business, in sports, everything. And they found that the single most determining factor to determine success was if they had resilience. So that ability to just keep going and going and going and going until they found that break. More so than if they came from money or where they were born or their education. It was if they had that grit. And that's exactly what you are describing and what you have to a T. Well, and you too, Emily, like look at what you've built with Femme Fatale and your elite services that you offer. That's grit, you know, and look at the influence you've had in the social media world and just generally as a female entrepreneur and just an entrepreneur, you nailed it. It is in life. It's grit. I wonder, like, how do you avoid, because I know a lot of different friends and, and, you know, my brother at times really feels bad for himself. You know, they'll they'll get down. Do you ever find you getting those thoughts or? No, listen, I've got a bit. We can talk for four hours on every character flaw and fault I have. (laughs) The really interesting book would be me writing and telling you those stories. So uh, one of my partners, we have a joke. He says, Chris, that'll go in the unauthorized biography we'll do of you someday. Yep. (laughs) But the one thing, and maybe this has been a gift and a blessing I've received, is I've never thought of giving up or feeling sorry or sad for myself. Zero. I'm truly grateful. I've been blessed. A, I'm born in a developed nation where we have a, with challenges, but every drug I've needed, I've had access to up until that incident with Kaladikum. Whether it's been an asthma inhaler, pancreatic enzymes, antibiotics, I've been blessed with a supportive family and friends. I've got, you can go on forever about my blessings. So what do you bring when you've got that much around you? You bring your grit, you bring drive. When I was born, uh, life expectancy was four. When I was in high school, life expectancy was 18. But I never crossed my mind that 
not to plan for the future. Hmm. Just yeah. never really, frankly, and also I'll give my credit to my family. No one ever discussed or mentioned an illness. Oh, wow. I mean, put it this way. People would say, Chris, you have to take your pills. You've got a doctor's appointment. You have to go. But when we're, the family was sitting around, no one ever said, oh, my gosh, Chris, how do you cope? What are you doing with this? They would just say, oh, so what are you going to do when you graduate? My grandpa said, okay, Chris, you're in grade 11. Are you going to work your brain or brawn? Do you want to go to school or do you just want <laughs> Like this was pre-internet, obviously. This is in the eighties. So, but are you going to open a business? Do you want to get a? Like, what are you going to do? No one said, Chris. You've got an illness. Does that impact you? Ever? I've never, wow. ever. So, partly the world in which I grew up and lived in Saskatchewan. Even when I was a kid, I always had a job. Everyone said, Well, if you, Chris, you have to have a job. So I had a paper flyer route, then a paper route. Then I worked at McDonald's. It was kind of just assumed. Maybe the next book you need to write is a parenting book on how to raise children with terminal illnesses. I'd feel unqualified to, but I could tell them my story and just say my grandparents, siblings, brother, sister, it was just a friend's. The only question I ever had was, oh, what are you taking those pills for? CF becomes evidence when you're sitting. Back in those days, by the way, we used to have to take 30 to 40 pills a meal. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was that. That was the challenging part. Was like now we've got enzymes. You can take five or six a meal. Yeah. The biggest breakthrough in my life and world was when they developed pancreatic enzymes. You could digest your food with five pills. Wow. With Thirty. Now, did you ever have to do the therapy? I remember Julia growing up. My sister had to do the therapy three times a day, where she'd hang upside down on that board. Did you have to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I used to actually go to the hospital every day for it. Oh, wow. So we did an hour every day. I'd go to the physiotherapist. Well, it used to be, now the rule is you have to stay six feet apart if you have CF. Yeah. Uh, back in those days, and this was in the 90s, we all went in, CF patient besides CF, COPD, you name it. We were all in the same room together. And the physios would come in and they'd just pummel whoever was sent there for that day. <laughs> So we used to we'd hang out, then we'd go for a cup of coffee afterwards. <laughs> the, uh, I used to go visit my friends who were patients when they were in hospital. Now that would never happen. I know. Isn't that right. funny? Now they know you can... You can't can get And it's a death now. No, sadly, if I look back to all the people I knew, I think there's two that are alive. I mean, everyone expired. The, uh, now I know what new different people... I've met, but mostly online through Facebook, etc. But back in the day in Saskatchewan, I remember I talked about a couple of them in the book. Ron Moore, who ran the Penticton Ironman, I thought he was invincible. I had CF, had two kids, ran two businesses, bike stores in Edmonton, Alberta. This actually shocked me because here's a guy, Penticton Ironman, that's a six mile swim, 180 kilometer bike race, and a 26 mile marathon. Wow. He ran it in under 12 hours. Wow. Then he died. I don't know what he died from. I've got to whether it's CF or what happened to him. I assume it's CF related. I remember Bernard Bitts was a lawyer I knew. Great guy. Had CF. He expired I think, in his 40s. These were people who I held a lot of regard for. So it's really unfortunate when you see great people. And Courtney Boyle, he was a kid who had more grit and drive than anyone I knew. He passed when he was eight. Wow. And I learned a lot about grit from him. Now, he didn't expire because of lack of grit. 
you know, he just was overcome but with the illness. It's just sometimes it's just too strong. I mean, you can do everything. That's it. I mean, Emily, you know, I'm sure in the case with your sister, Mm -hmm. she put everything she had into it. But you just went through two double lung transplants and was listing for a third. Oh, wow. That's incredible. But that's grit. I mean, to go through a piece of surgery like that once is amazing, but twice? Actually, if anything, it helps cultivate grit. She was a, yeah, a gritty, a gritty, gritty. I remember after the second double lung, she was in the ICU and they had a lot of complications. She was in there for, the surgery went on for hours longer than they anticipated from all the scar tissue they had to scrape out of her lung cavity. And then one of the lungs collapsed. And so we didn't know if she was going to make it at that time. She did. And when she woke up and she was intubated, she couldn't talk and she wanted a pen and paper and was trying to communicate and she broke down, oh, Henry, she wanted a chocolate bar. (laughs) And she kind of gave us like a smirk. She's intubated, so she can't eat anything, right? But that was just her, like, just... That's hilarious. That's great. I love stories like that. Non-COVID related, but uh, when I... So I I did the book, wrote, sent it off to... I'll tell you, I didn't do it ordering oh, Henry. I ordered a bottle of wine. But (laughs) so... I sent the book off to get the editor, and I ended up in hospital. This would be April of 2021. You still have CF despite the medication, right? So I ended up in hospital for three weeks. But with the new drug, it's not a death sentence. I'm treating a chronic condition. So anyhow, I, I knew that there was a lockdown. So because of COVID, you go in, you're not allowed out of the room, and no one's allowed in other than an immediate physician or nurse. You can't even go out for a cup of coffee. So I brought a Bodum coffee, lots of coffee beans in the grinder, and a wine glass just in case. So I'm in the room and the day I got there, the guy said for the book, oh, Chris, you need a picture. You got to get to a photographer. I said, well, I can't because I'm not allowed out of the room. He said, just do a selfie. We'll fix it up. So I ended up with a pick line, which I'd always not wanted to do. I had a pick line. I'm in this hospital room and here's a picture. I don't know if you can see it. That's me in April, 2021 in the hospital. That is too funny. But because of the new drug, I'm obviously sick enough to get a hospital bed, but I'm going to be fine. Here's a picture in the book of me in 2012 on four liters of oxygen a minute. Wow. But Emily, I am in the exact same room as I was in 2012 on four liters of oxygen. Oh, my gosh. Is that not surreal? So there I was, same chair, same room. This time, though, you saw the picture from the back. It's clear I'm there for a short stay and I'm going to get out. <laughs> and imagine that like that time saying that this is what you would be doing this far away. Nobody would have believed it. Looking at you that sick. Yeah, no, no, it was bizarre. So I'm sitting in the room and I thought to myself, geez, Chris, talk about you got to turn every lemon into lemonade. I'm thinking, talk about blessed. I've got the opportunity. I'm on this drug. So yeah, I'm in a hospital for a couple of weeks to get some treatment. The only real reason is because the only way you can get these medications is through IV. So you need intravenous, you need the physio. So it's better just to come in for two or three weeks and treat it. But I'm thinking, look at now I've got a book I've just put out and I'm sitting here. I've got phenomenal caregivers. So I called a guy I work with and I said, Kieran, what are you doing right now? He says, not much. It's Saturday. Nobody knows I'm in the hospital. I just didn't advertise it because I don't want people to worry. And if we all just stick on our program with work, we don't have to talk about this hospital. So I said, I'm going to eat transfer you 60 bucks. Go to the nearest LCBO, which for American viewers is a liquor store. I said, get a phenomenal bottle of red wine. 
and go to the front door of St. Mike's Hospital. Somebody's going to meet you there at the front door. He has no problem. I said, well, Kieran, aren't you curious why? He says, only if you want to tell me. <laughs> I said, well, I'm in the hospital. I've written this book and I want to celebrate. So he laughed and I got the bottle, went up to the room, opened it, had a glass, turned up the music and uh, counted my blessings. Oh, <laughs> wow. And you're in the hospital while you're doing it. Yeah. But you know what? When I was, the book ultimately came out, I decided to give a copy to every single person who would be involved in my care team in that last stint in 2021. Emily, I gave 68 books to people on that ward. Wow. You think there's the nurses, the porter, cleaning staff, the head managing nurse, and it's 24-7. on and on and on. And then there's the resident, the intern, the doctors, because it's not just one doctor. It's every doctor who would see it per shift. Yeah. It were 68 people. Can you imagine? Think of the humanity and the resources that came together to care for me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. People are bringing you in meals. Wild. Somebody picked the time to cook it. Like, and they're giving, now of course they're paid and they're part of the system, but still, these are human beings. So I wrote, got everyone's name, wrote a little note in the book for everybody. Oh my gosh. That's and, incredible. Uh, it was absolutely a joyful, fun experience to be able to thank them in this way because, of course, the stories all come out of my stay there <laughs> in large part, right? Yeah. And, and so Kaleidico really was just this game changer for you. Beyond a game changer. Now, it was the first generation of these gene modulating drugs. We're now four generations into it, and the new one which you'll know, of course, is Trikafta. Yeah, and that works for the majority of the population. It works not only for the majority of the population, but it's like Kaleidical times 10. So if anybody's on Kaleidical, they want to switch them over to Trikafta. Oh, so you can take Trikafta. Well, bizarrely enough, I can't. I'm not eligible for it because while I had my first gene type was the one that they got the fix for first, Mm -hmm. my second gene type is another bizarrely rare one. I actually found out what it was yesterday. It's called the the 621 plus 1 G greater than T. Oh. Everyone else gets the 508, but I'm the 621 G greater than T gene. Nobody knows what to do with Okay. I don't know. Maybe there's three or four of us who have it. So we don't know yet whether Trikafta may or may not work. No one's done a study. But we can't even, I mean... Right now, nobody can even access Trikafta in Canada unless they the pharmaceutical company basically takes pity on them. Yeah. Well, although we've made huge strides. So <laughs> there was over 160 patients given the Compassionate Use Program with by Vertex. That's incredible. Trikafta, which was just incredible. Anybody whose lung function fell below, I think it was 40%, and they had a doctor recommend it, could get on Trikafta. So the company came and basically saved 160 people. That's incredible. Those are lives that now go mm-hmm. off and forward and do amazing things. But Health Canada has now approved it. Kenneth has recommended it. He negotiated for a price. And bizarrely, the Pan-Canadian Pharmacy Alliance, which is the alliance of all provincial governments, has already negotiated the price for it. So we're just waiting for the final Kenneth report. And then in the Canadian context, each province, which is equivalent to a U.S. state, has three years to decide whether they're signing on to it. We know because the Minister of Health in Ontario has said she will sign on. In fact, they already have for Orcambi, another gene modulator. And I expect that everyone, at least in Saskatchewan, Alberta, 
Ontario and Quebec for sure, who has a doctor's prescription note for it, will have Tricafta before Christmas. That's incredible. I mean, it's so frustrating because it's taken so long. The people in the States have had it now for two years. And and it's been this fight. You know, you know firsthand you've been suing the government. That's it. Yeah, yeah. The fight for all of the CF patients and you don't even qualify for this. Why is it that it's been this way? Why? And there have been people that have died trying to get it. You know, that sweet girl out east, I believe it was. No, we've lost too many. One years old. We've lost more than we can even mention the past two years. It's absolutely criminal. But one of the U.S. presidents had a great line that I always quote. What are the nine scariest words in the English language? Hi, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. (laughs) The road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's the bureaucrats in the government who came up with layers upon layers of bad bureaucracy that gets in the way of a doctor-patient relationship. Hmm. The only two people that should be participating in what medical care a patient requires is a doctor and the patient. Exactly. medical team around that doctor. What we have in the Canadian context is for accessing medications, the bureaucrats get in the way and say, well, here's the criterion we think the doctor should utilize when deciding what to prescribe. And that's absolutely unacceptable, inappropriate, and ought not to occur. I remember this was before the whole Kaleidico thing. I was on a plane in the U.S. flying from Chicago to Houston. And the guy beside me on the plane, we got into a discussion. And I didn't know anything about every drug that we needed in Canada, we tended to get. So there was not an issue. But he said, isn't the challenge with your Canadian system that unnamed bureaucrats are making healthcare decisions for you? And I said, oh, no, it's just the doctor and whatever, everything works really well. Well, he was right and I was wrong. I had no idea the labyrinth of bureaucratic institutions and organizations that have been established that get in the way of that doctor-patient relationship. Listen, government does some good things, but like anything, you've always got to be holding people to account. One of the rules I put in the book is you need to be the chief executive officer of your own health enterprise. Yes. Whether you are employed, unemployed, educated, with a medical degree where you don't have any medical training, it doesn't matter. You are now the CEO of your health enterprise and the people you on your team that you need to lead, motivate, inspire, doctors, physicians, pharmacists, physios, you name it, the porters, you've got to inspire them. You've got to work with them. They give you their best medical advice on what treatments you should take, but you make the decision and you've got to rise to the occasion. You are now the CEO, even if you've never been a CEO. My brother, he uh, got really sick a few years ago and and he was close to passing and he was in a hospital in London. That was where his care always was. And I ended up going down there because my mom had called me hysterical and I ended up having to advocate for him. I contacted a doctor friend in Toronto who recommended he get a TIPS procedure because he was having internal bleeding from his liver and his stomach. And he helped me coordinate getting him airlifted to Toronto. As soon as he got to TGH, they put him into surgery and then he was in ICU there. Whereas in London, they were just giving him bag of blood after bag of blood for three weeks. And he was getting sicker and sicker and sicker with no plan. They were basically just letting him die. And it was at that point where I was like, 
it's up to us to make sure that. And so after that, I moved all of his care to Toronto. I was like, all right, you know, even though he's much closer to London, we're not going to risk it. And he sees a specialist for his liver now at TGH. That's a great anecdote of how and why you need to step up and take the lead, take counsel from whoever and wherever you can get it. I mean, I used to, uh, Dr. Tullis, my doctor, wrote the foreword for the book, and she, in comments, said, you know, when Chris was there, I used to book appointments with her because I was still running my practice. I said, look, I got a busy schedule too. So I would always put on my suit or whatever I dress up for an appointment. So she'd come in. I would always get out of bed, stand. And you got to sort of, the old lads, we used to always say the word, you got to fake it till you make it to some extent. (laughs) At the end of the day, I defer greatly to my doctor. But you've got to take on that role. You got to manufacture it for yourself. And that also gets you out of the lying in a bed, being a patient. Yes. That institutionalization, believe me, it's so easy to fall into. Yes. You're lying in bed, people bring you meals. They don't even like you to get up and get a glass of water for good reason. The other word, someone might trip, hurt themselves. They would love you to just lie there in bed. And they'll bring you meals, they'll take your blood, they'll tell you what you're doing and where you're going. You got to reverse engineer that. So I would get up every day, 5 a.m., make wow. my bed, get dressed, even if you throw water on, groom in the sink in the bathroom, or if you can get down the hall to have a shower. Every day, get up. So by 5.30, I'm a morning guy. Like I go to bed at 9. So it also lifts you up because you're now psychologically reverse engineered the whole process. So I'm sitting there with a cup of coffee doing my morning rituals and routines. By the way, great book I recommend to everyone. Robin Sharma, The 5 a.m. Club. Oh, I know Robin. Oh, my gosh. Do you actually know him? I do, yeah. Okay, well, pass on to him. He is a rock star, a huge influencer for me. I've read all his books. He gave I, me a copy of every book of his. He wrote little notes to me in the book. Oh, I've read them, though. I actually gave the 5 a.m. club to Dr. Tullis. Oh, you did? So I follow his morning routine. So then you're familiar with it. We were having uh, tea while he was writing that a few times in Yorkville. No way. Yeah, and he was telling me all about it because he went way over schedule when he was writing it because there was just so much he wanted to include. Okay, that's incredible. Actually, you know all of my favorite individuals. <laughs> Robin Sharma stands four square with Grant Cardone for me. Oh, I love it. Yeah, so I followed that. I mean, get up, dress up, show up. You just don't know where moments will come, right? You got to be ready for them. I also, it sends a message to the staff that you're fully engaged and on the ice. So the nurses, the doctors, they know that you're taking this, you've got your heart and soul and everything on the line in it, you know? And so I think that's an important message and why you got to just get up and show up and you're just, so that was part of my, the other thing is, so I gave a little pep talk. I said to the unit nurse and the team when I got there, I said, I promise you this, I will be up and at it when you guys exit your shift and when you start your shift. I mean, they do 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Mm-hmm. I said, I will do everything in my God-given power to make discernible improvements daily so that by the time you start or end a shift, we'll see some difference or you will at least know that I have left everything on the field in an effort to do so. And I said, if I'm flipping or I don't in any way, you're authorized. I'm asking you, call me out on it. 
you slacking for? You're lying there like a lump of wood in the sand. Like, get moving. So I said, call me out if you see me slip. That's my only... Didn't you ever, like, wake up and you're like, no, I'm just, I'm going to stay in bed? No, I got to, not really, no. I got to say no. What's driving you? It's a fight and you just don't want to, because A, I was losing. When I went in in April, Mm -hmm. my lung function was 54%. Yeah. And it fell down to 46%. (laughs) So what was driving me was fear, concern. Put it this way, the only thing I could do, by the way, I did still feel terrible. Like I was not well. So I would go back to bed. I would get up. First of all, it was also the love of a cup of coffee in the morning. Mm-hmm. I feel that. If I was really feeling rough, I'd go back to bed. I didn't just get up and hustle all day because I was in the room. Yeah. And sometimes I would not get up at five, but I'd get up at six. But I was driven to make sure I would never, ever let a shift change start and see me in bed. Oh, I love that. It's a psychological thing for me. By the way, nothing rested on it, really, other than my own psychoses. But <laughs> Jill said, Chris, you're a little bit, uh, that's a bit disturbed. I didn't want to have the nursing team or anyone not think that I was, because I publicly made the declaration I was going to always be up. I didn't want people to know that I didn't do that. So I made sure I was always up. Plus, I love a good cup of coffee and I'm a morning person. So it wasn't hard. Now, I may go back and take a nap for two hours in the middle of the day because I was sick. I was in a hospital. I had IV antibiotics going through me 24-7. There is, like you mentioned, that psychological component. And that is just so powerful. And I know that Floyd Mayweather used to set his alarm and work out in the middle of the night because psychologically, it would tell him, when you're sleeping, I'm working. When my competition sleeps, I'm working. Mm -hmm. And so just like simple things like that, getting up, getting dressed. Yeah. The other thing, Emily, it's the one thing you can easily do with just sheer will. You can get up for 45 minutes, throw some water. Now, if I was really feeling rough, I might just get up and make the coffee and then have the coffee and drag my heels on dressing up, right? Like it's honored sometimes in the breach as opposed to the completion of it. But listen, it's not that hard to do. Get up, dress up, and show up to the chair in your room and have a cup of coffee. You can pull that one off. The little things. It's the little things that lead yeah. into the big things. When you put them all together, these tiny little steps, one at a time. And that's what I tell my brother. And even, you know, like with working out, when I tell myself, I don't feel like it or something, I just yeah. just put your running shoes on and go for a walk. And then once I'm out there, it leads <laughs> to a run. <laughs> and it just, it's yeah. those little things that add up and just making those steps. So for this last year, let's see, you ran your law firm. During yeah. a pandemic, you wrote a book yeah. and you led basically this entire advocacy campaign for the CF community. <laughs> like, the CF community piece was a huge team effort because we had CF Get Loud and CF Canada. Like yeah, CF Human month. Society, yes. Yeah, no, but I... You were instrumental. You have been instrumental in all of it. Everybody would agree across the board. You've just been this voice for everyone and you don't even, you can't even get the drug. And I mean, like, are you allowed to talk about suing the government? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> how I describe you to people is a modern day Aaron Brockovich. I'm like this person who has just gone against this massive wrongdoing that is right in front of our eyes, but being covered. And you are going up against the government with these lawsuits. What are they? Okay, so I'll give you a quick bet. First of all, 
I am a litigator by trade, and my firm has a constitutional law group where we sue the government, I won't say regularly, but frequently. Oh, that's incredible. Put it this way, the LGBT purge case where Justin Trudeau made the public apology. Yeah. Terminating LGBT people from the community from public service from the 60s, 70s, 80s into the 90s. You were found to be gay, but in the military, you were fired. Wow. We sued the government and had a $155 million settlement for the community. Wow. With a lot of others. So, by the way, Trudeau was very pro-LGBT, but we still had to sue to get that result. Doug Elliott, my law partner, really led the, the way there. Wow. So it's also something that I know and can do. <laughs> so uh, with the CF medications, when we had, and it's so complicated with the different layers of organizations, like you've got the federal government has part control over health. So they have the Patent Medicine Pricing Review Board that determines the price drugs enter in. We launched an action, intervened in the lawsuit in Quebec, and that's now at the Court of Appeal challenging that, the constitutionality of that. We did a class action in Canada, of course, and I keep saying about Canada because I think you've got a lot of American listeners as well. Mm -hmm. Our charter of rights would be like the uh, American Constitution, the rights, the uh, First Amendment, Second Amendment. So you've got the right to life, liberty, security of the person. In Canada, they said you have the right to medical assistance in dying. Well, our argument is you've got a right to medical assistance in living to access life-saving medications. So we said that there's a charter violation by precluding Canadians from accessing these medications when they ought to be prescribed mm -hmm. out. It violates Section 7, and it's not justified in a free and democratic society. So we had a BC class action for violating the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And we said the governments, provincial and federal, were coordinated in their effort in that violation, which they were. That is still at the pleading stage. We're at the Court of Appeal in the Quebec suit against the federal government. And it's the only way you need to do two things in advocacy, in my submission. You need the political advocacy, but you need to couple that with litigation and go to the courts because then it gives a backstop to it. Because you're naming the minister. In the BC action, we sued the assistant deputy minister, the deputy minister, and the minister, as well as different organizations. So you're going to be held to account. Mm -hmm. you a dollar figure to it. And once you sue, they either defend, swear affidavits, you have a trial, you go to court, and a judge will decide, or you negotiate a settlement. In the LGBT case, for instance, we sued, and then we all went into two years of very intense negotiations wow. to come up with, and it included a monument being built and medals and a variety of different pieces. And Doug Elliott, and we had a team of 17 lawyers, I think, ultimately on it. Wow. Two years, Doug Elliott gets full credit for leading that negotiation. He was terrific, my law partner. So, but you need a political and a legal strategy. And the reason why I was so engaged is, A, I'm a lawyer so I could do it. And I know lawyers so I can call on them to help out. And I'm also obligated because I got the drug, a drug, and saved my life. And I got it because people came to my assistance. They advocated for me. They stood with me. Well, can you imagine, let's say you're on a ship, put it in a basic analogy. Ship has 169 people. That's how many people need a Galatica. Ship's sinking. You get on a life raft, you get to shore, but the ship is still sinking. There's 169 people on it. No one I know, and don't think anyone ever <laughs> would say, okay, well, that's great. I'm going to go off and have a drink and forget about the 169. You're now obligated to get them off. 
I think a lot of people would just kind of stay on shore, not knowing what to do, not wanting to. I don't think a lot of people would do what you've done, Chris. I think you really, you don't like to give yourself credit by just how amazing you are and what you've done. A lot of people would have understood if you just wanted to, you know, maybe take it easy. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I guess I never, I never really considered a second option, right? The only option really, as I see it, is you've got to get the 169 off that boat. And then if there's another boat and it's a similar drug and I'm on the drug and I'm now thriving relatively, okay? Like I'm back on the ice, back in the game of life. And that's why I love coming, even in the pandemic. I mean, I was coming into the office working because I love it. It's fun. When I was almost checked out of the game, the only thing you want to do is get back in the game. Mm-hmm. And you appreciate it so much. So I'm like, when you're in a hospital bed and you think, shoot, I may not get out of this alive. It may be over. Like the clock may be out and look at all those things I would like to still do. So now I wake up and I think, wow, Chris, no matter what the problems and challenges I face, as we all do every day in life, I'm thinking at least I'm able to deal with them. Like I might get knocked down consistently, constantly, like we all do, but you can still get back up. Like it is a bit of a rush. I can't. For me, it's an adrenaline rush thinking I'm still in the game. How do you stay so level headed with all of this? I mean, I get so emotional sometimes when I'm dealing with the government and and trying to fight for this for Chris after losing my sister and it just being so personal. Yeah. Listen, we all get frustrated. I've got my dear, dear friend, Doug Anweiler. He helps me with this as he donates hundreds of hours of time. He, all the social media stuff that we do with the treatment society, that's Doug. So we're a perfect team. It's just the two of us. So He knows how the social media front works. He's taught me a little bit about how I have to retweet. And I'm a little (laughs) bit (laughs) Anything I know, I learned from Doug. He says, Chris, you got to retweet this and you follow this and you like this. I said, no problem. He flips it to me and then I do that. So he's been a great, I'm off on a tangent with it, but you do need to vent. So I vent with Doug or whoever, but I'm obsessed with momentum, obsessed with it, OCD. Finding it, capturing it for the moment, and trying to find it another event, incident. It could be as simple. If you look for momentum, it's amazing where you find it. Mm. You have a positive interaction at the coffee shop where someone lifts you up. I'll tell you, when I walked out of the hospital after the three weeks in April, I walked into the coffee shop I go to. I hadn't been there for three weeks. Normally, I'm there three times a day. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, Chris, where have you been? And then you have a very positive interaction. Tell them a little bit about the story. They're like, oh, my God, that's great that you're out. Glad you're well. That can be momentum. You walk down the street and someone says something positive and polite to you. You say something positive to someone else, and then you know you've given them some momentum. I'm not talking about big things. I'm talking about real basic stuff that are the foundational building blocks of momentum. That's where you start when you get that grist for the mill, then, and if you're constantly obsessively looking for momentum, I use momentum as a way to say uplift. You uplift someone and you get uplifted. Mm-hmm. I heard this call. I just had a coffee with, first time I've met the guys, very interesting individual. We just had a great 30-minute coffee. He's an accountant. He taught me a little bit about what he does and how we might work together. But in that exchange, he uplifted me with three or four comments that he made that I found inspiration in. And if I did the same for him, terrific. 
But when you meet strangers on the street, they're a great way for that to happen. Even I talk about it in the book, you know, being in a hospital, is like being on the road to Jericho. And the, the support and momentum you can get from even just a smile or a kind word from a porter or somebody who's coming in or out of your room, you never know. And it also goes to, mm-hmm. we all have to be mindful of this, the impact we have on others with even gestures, comments. Don't, why would make a snide remark when you can make a positive remark? Uh, just never forget the impact that you have on others. So if you're mindful of that and you're looking for uplift and inspiration in every encounter, God is my witness, you will find it. Oh, I love that. I love that so much, Chris. Yeah. Okay, so where can people get your book? Well, as of right now, the primary place is www.beatingtheoddsodds.ca. So I'm self-published with it. So it's not really in bookstores. Although we're now getting on Amazon, you can buy it on Kindle. And in the next couple of days, Amazon will be selling it on paperback too. So Can't wait. Well, I will be linking it everywhere. And so everybody, make sure that you're getting a copy. Send me a message or take a picture, tag Chris in it, post it up on your social media. We want to see it. We want to see you with your copy. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm going to have to get you on again. You're the best, Emily. The sun rises and sets over you and all you do. Oh, Chris, I love you. Okay, love it. Thanks, Emily.